Well, it is wonderful to see you on this beautiful Lord's Day. If you have a Bible with you, would you turn with me to the book of Esther? We are still in what's called the wisdom tradition or the, the literature, the writings of the Old Testament. And a few weeks ago, we got to the one text in the Revised Common Lectionary during the three-year cycle out of Song of Solomon. Today, we are in the one text from the book of Esther. And so if you will find Esther, and by the way, if you are new and you don't have a Bible, it would be the greatest privilege for us to be able to get you one. But if you can't find Esther this morning, if, you're, if you'll find Psalms, and then just go a couple to the left, uh, you'll find it there, Esther chapter 4. By the way, uh, when Deb and I were first dating, uh, Debbie was a brand new Christian, and uh, actually, Tammy Bullock, who was part of the church in Seattle where Debbie met the Lord, Tammy bought Debbie her first Bible. And so while we were dating, I was trying to teach Deb how to kind of find all the different texts in the Bible. And, and one of my jobs uh, as youth minister was to read one of the scripture texts each Sunday. And I, uh, one Sunday, I got one of those friendship and worship cards. Do you remember those? Uh, those cards that were neither friendly or worshipful anytime I ever got one. But... Uh, <laughs> But somebody gave me a card that said, uh, Pastor Scott, would you, when you tell us what the text is, would you wait for just a moment so we can find it? So I always had that in the back of my mind. And especially on those Sundays when the text was from Esther or some place that was kind of hard to find. And, uh, and so I, I remember <laughs> the text one morning was from like Habakkuk or Zephaniah, somewhere like that. And I said, so turn with me to uh, Habakkuk. And... Uh, and I could find, see people kind of trying to find their way. And I said, if you, just for fun, if you want to, you could race your neighbor for a quarter to see who could find it first, right? <laughs> that week, I got a friendship and worship card that said, Pastor Scott, we have been praying that you would become more respectful in the pulpit. <laughs> and now you are encouraging gambling in church. Uh, so so uh, no racing to find it. But... But this morning we are in the one text that we get in the Revised Common Lectionary out of Esther. It's, this morning we're gonna look at some verses from the fourth chapter beginning at verse nine and then over to chapter seven beginning at verse one. If you're with us this morning and able, I'd invite you to stand in honor of the Lord's word. This is Esther four beginning at verse nine. Hattach came back and told Esther what Mordecai had said. In reply, Esther ordered Hattach to tell Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people in his provinces know that there's a single law in a case like this. Any man or woman who comes to the king in the inner courtyard without being called is to be put to death. Only the person to whom the king holds out the gold scepter may live. In my case, I haven't been called to come to the king for the past 30 days. When they told Mordecai Esther's words, he had them respond to Esther. Don't think for one minute that unlike all the other Jews, you'll come out of this alive simply because you are in the palace. In fact, if you don't speak up at this very important time, relief and rescue will appear for the Jews from another place, but you and your family will die. But this is the key line. But who knows? <laughs> Maybe it was for a moment like this that you came to be part of the royal family. And now to chapter seven, verse one. When the king and Haman came in for the banquet with Queen Esther, the king said to her, this is the second day we've met for wine. What is your wish, Queen Esther? I'll give it to you. 
What do you want? I'll do anything, even give you half the kingdom. Queen Esther answered, if I please the king, and if the king wishes, give me my life, that's my wish, and the lives of my people too, that's my desire. We have been sold, I and my people, to be wiped out, killed, and destroyed. If we simply had been sold as male and female slaves, I would have said nothing, but no enemy can compensate the king for this kind of damage. King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, who is this person and where is he? Who would dare to do such a thing? Esther replied, a man who hates an enemy. He was in the room. This wicked Haman. Haman, rightfully, was overcome with terror in the presence of the king and queen. And then to verse 9. Harbono, one of the eunuchs serving the king, said, Sir, look, there's the stake that Haman made for Mordecai, the man who spoke up and did something good for the king. It's standing at Haman's house, 75 feet high. Impale him on it, the king ordered. So they impaled Haman on the very pole that he had set up for Mordecai. And the king's anger went away. The word of God for the people of God. <laughs> Thanks be to God. It's very funny. Middleton had that exact same reaction about 45 minutes ago. We joked that maybe it should be thanks be to God uh, with a question mark. So again, we are in this text that we only come to once every three years because it is so problematic and challenging. It's a narrative story um, that Veggie Tales has tried to do a version of and, and we do kind of cleaned up versions in children's church on occasion. But it's a narrative that's rooted in the post-exilic life of Judah. If you remember the story, Judah gets swallowed up into exile into Babylon. But eventually, Cyrus the Persian comes and conquers Babylon and allows most of the Judeans to go home. But this story actually derives from some remnants, some folks who didn't get to go home, some people who are still in the land occupied by Persia, in this case, in a region called Susa. People who are isolated and alone, far from Jerusalem, trying to keep a particular way of life alive in a foreign world. It's a problematic soap opera of a story filled with intrigue, violence, sexual overtones, and gendered power plays. One of the most problematic parts of the book is that in its Hebrew form, and by the way, in what's called the Apocrypha, there's some additions to the book of Esther in Greek. And in many ways, those additions try to correct what are the problems in Hebrew. And the big problem in the Hebrew form, which is the form almost all of us, I think, have in front of us in our translations, is that God never shows up. There's no mention of God anywhere in the text. Strange to have a biblical text in which God is absent. And so this morning, let me kind of quickly, if you have your Bible in front of you, I'm just going to run through Esther really quick because it's important that we know the story. So buckle your seatbelts. Here we go. In chapter one, the book opens with a six-month party, woohoo, thrown by Ahasuerus to demonstrate his power and wealth in the region of Susa. The story is told from the perspective of remnant Jews living under the reign of Persia. At the festival, as the festival comes to an end, King Ahasuerus wants his queen Vashti to come and show off her beauty. She, rightly, decides she doesn't want to be paraded in front of all of his friends and refuses. This appears not only to be a problem for the king, but interestingly in chapter 1, it appears to be a problem for all of the men in the kingdom. 
For they believe that if the queen starts rebelling publicly, perhaps all of the women in the land will start rebelling. Welcome to the 21st century. So the king banishes Vasti from his presence, right? So chapter 2. A beauty contest is thrown in all 127 provinces so that the king can choose a new queen. In the capital city lives a beautiful Jewish girl named Hadassah. That's very important. Her name is Hadassah. That is her Hebrew name. Her Persian name is Esther. She is an orphan raised by her uncle Mordecai, one of the leaders of the Jewish people in exile. When she's taken away, Mordecai warns her not to reveal her identity. The name, by the way, and this is another important point, point today, the name Hadassah in Hebrew means darkness. And the name Esther is related to a Hebrew word for to hide. She's going to hide her identity. While Mordecai does not reveal his connection to Esther, he visits her regularly to check in on her well-being. One day he overhears two men plotting the king's assassination and informs Esther so she can warn the king. The two conspirators are caught and executed, and Mordecai is honored by the king by having his name and story written in the book of Chronicles. Now the third chapter. In the meantime, King Ahasuerus appoints Haman the Agagite, who is an Amalekite, by the way, and that's important because Amalekites and Jews have a bad history together. Haman, the Amalekite, the Agagite, is now the prime minister and, issues a and the king issues a decree that all should bow to him whenever they see him. Mordecai, because of this history, refuses to bow. This infuriates Haman. So he takes a large gift to the king and convinces him that the Jews cannot be trusted because they follow a different law and are not fully loyal. He asks for permission to have all the Jews in all 127 provinces of Susa killed. And the king gives us permission. Chapter 4. When he hears about this decree, Mordecai rightly mourns and goes to Esther to get her to stop this extermination from happening. This is where our text for this morning picks up. She's afraid to approach the king because anyone who approaches the king without being summoned can be killed. And he hasn't summoned her for a while. But she agrees to go, but urges Mordecai to have all the Jews pray and fast for three days on her behalf. Chapter 5. The king is pleased to see Esther and lets her ask for anything she desires. So she decides she just wants the king and Haman to join her for dinner. Pleased with this request and pleased by the dinner, he grants her another request. And she again asks to have another feast with the king and Haman. On his way home, well satisfied, Haman encounters Mordecai, who again refuses to bow to him. Angry and spurred on by the equally angry wife, Haman decides to build a ridiculously high gallows. By the way, in the Common English Bible, it's kind of a confusing Hebrew word to translate. The Common English Bible translates it as an impaling pole, which is even more awful than a gallows, from which to hang or to impale Mordecai. Chapter 6. The king can't sleep, and so he invites his ministers to read to him from the book of Chronicles. It just happens that what is read to him is the section about Mordecai foiling the plot to assassinate the king. And he realizes in that moment he's never truly rewarded Mordecai. So the next day, the king sees Haman and asks, what should the king do in order to honor some kind of loyal subject? Thinking the question is about him, Haman tells the king, oh, you should put the finest robes on this subject and have him paraded in honor throughout town on the king's finest horse. 
So the next day, the king does exactly that, only for Mordecai. <laughs> Chapter 7. Now, super irate, Haman is invited again to dine with the king and Queen Esther. She tells the king at dinner, and this is our text for today again, that someone is plotting her death and the death of her people. She reveals it's Haman. The king is furious. Haman begs for his life from Esther, which the king walks in on and interprets as an additional attempt to assault Esther, which makes him even angrier. And Haman is hung or impaled from the gallows or the stake that he had built for Mordecai. Chapter 8. Seeing the damage that Haman has done, the king appoints Mordecai as the new prime minister, and he and Esther make a decree that the Jews are allowed to defend themselves whenever they're under threat. And then in chapter 9, on three separate occasions, the Jews are able, under this new law, to defend themselves. And Mordecai and Esther declare that a feast, the Feast of Purim, should be established. And at that festival, this story should be read, and people should eat and drink and take care of the poor. Now, in Jewish history, the Feast of Purim is actually quite raucous. At that feast, when the book of Esther is read, the people get quite animated, and they boo and they hiss when Haman enters into the story and is mentioned. And they cheer and clap for Esther and Mordecai. There's even an ancient tradition in the Talmud that at Purim, celebrants should drink so much, and they should drink and drink. This is not a Nazarene party. They should drink and drink until they are unable to differentiate between the phrases, bless Mordecai and curse Haman. It's a party. So here's the question that I want to wrestle with this morning. Why in the world, even one time every three years, would we read or even celebrate the reading of the book of Esther? What can we learn from a book of absence? A book that's, that has the absence of the obvious presence of God and whose leading character is named hiddenness and darkness. This week as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about how fortunate in some ways I am that I get to live and work in two spheres that are just filled with God talk, where God is visible and obvious. If we don't speak the name of God this morning with frequency and recognize God's presence at church, we have failed. And by the way, if there is ever a Sunday that goes by and we do not somehow sing about, pray to, preach about God in either Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, <laughs> fire us and get new ministers, right? I love that I get to use God's name. And I even love that in the other third of my life, when I get to walk across the street and teach students at the university. I love even there, Jesus gets his own statue right in the middle of the campus. <laughs> and so in my occupation, it's not the lack of God talk that is the problem. In my occupation, it's conflicts between those who use God talk a lot and whether we're using God talk rightly or not. Right. And we can get in good fights about that. But that is not the case for many of you present or watching this morning. In an increasingly secular world, you find yourself in settings where your faith is not taken for granted, where God's name is not regularly spoken, and where, if you're honest today, 
It feels like you must exist as a Christian more often than not in darkness and in hiddenness. I have joked with you before that sometimes when I'm with my golf buddies and it's just two of us or three of us and we get matched up with somebody, eventually they ask us what we do. And my friends tease me that my first inclination, and I hope this is not, I don't think, a confession of sin this morning, but when I'm asked on a plane or somewhere, what do you do? I have to admit, my first inclination is to say, I'm an ethicist. In part because it gets people to talk. And they'll say, how interesting. I'm not sure I've met one. And I say, well, there's only three of us in the world. Um, <laughs> it's not just that if I say I'm a pastor that it just shuts down the conversation often or opens it up in strange ways. But I actually think it's an impulse that I have to live so often in the obvious framework of God talk that every once in a while I just want to be part of that common world where sometimes the presence of God is hidden. Perhaps God is not completely hidden in the text. In chapter 4, Mordecai tells Esther that, in our text for this morning, that if she doesn't help, it's a fascinating way he puts it, deliverance will come, but quote-unquote, from another place. Haman, or, or Mordecai, is certain that deliverance, that salvation will come for those people likely out of the belief that God has made a covenant with them. Deliverance will come, but it will come from some other place if Esther doesn't react. And then later in chapter 6, Haman is warned by his friends that if Mordecai is from the Jewish people, quote, you will not prevail against him. Perhaps the God hidden in darkness in Susa is also at work redeeming his people and bringing about justice and goodness. And even those living in Susa seem to recognize and acknowledge that. One of my favorite books from the last uh, couple of decades, I think it was written 11 years ago or came out 11 years ago, is a book by James Davison Hunter. It's actually a sociologist tech, sociology text. James Davison Hunter is a sociologist. The title of the book is To Change the World. The Irony, Tragedy, and Possibility of Christianity in the Late Modern World. If you ever come into my office, there are books everywhere, and some of them are on shelves. Um, but I have books everywhere, and, and uh, oftentimes people walk into my office, and the first thing they say is, oh, books, right? And then they often will ask this question, have you read all these books? A friend years ago taught me that the right answer to that question is, some of them twice. Think about that for a minute. But anyway, <laughs> some of them twice. This is one of those books to which that is an honest answer. Some of them twice or three times. I, I love this book. In this book, Hunter, again, a sociologist, argues that Christians rightly want to change the world. But however, however, in the past few decades, Christians have too often viewed the political sphere as the place to try to make societal change. And in a long essay, he argues for a number of reasons that that is a little bit helpful as that been, has been, that in reality, it probably hasn't helped that much and in fact has in some ways made the problems worse and the positions of people more polarized in the world. And so Hunter, in, in response, argues that societal change is slow and it takes a long time. And this is the, an important point. It happens, he argues, not from below, but actually from above, from positions of public 
rather than political, from positions of public positions of influence and power. And thus, for Hunter, the primary problem Christians have faced is that we have focused too much on the political, but we have, we have often avoided positions of cultural influence. I'm going to tell you my favorite joke today, and some of you aren't going to get it, and some of you aren't going to think it's funny, but it's an amazing joke. <laughs> so I've, I've told you that um, years ago uh, in, in L.A., I got to be part of a kind of regular meeting of Jewish leaders, Catholic leaders, and Protestant leaders in Los Angeles. And we would get together four or five times a year, and each time we would give a different group leadership of the subject. And so the Protestants, we took prayer one time, and the Catholics took liturgy, and, and we gave to the Jewish leadership kind of media. And so they were having, we were having this wonderful conversation about the influence of television and film and all of that kind of stuff. But in the midst of that, one of the rabbis told a joke, and it's my favorite joke. The rabbi said, about 70 years ago, 80 years ago, there were a group of Jewish leaders who were very concerned about the direction politics was taking in America. They were very concerned about the direction finance was taking in America. And they were very concerned about this new thing called Hollywood. And so there was a whole bunch of them, and they met together for weeks, and they prayed together. And after that time was over, a third of them ran for office and moved to D.C., a third of them got MBAs and moved to Wall Street, and a third of them went to film school and moved to Hollywood. He said about 50 years later, a group of evangelical Christians got together. Very concerned about politics, very concerned about finance, very concerned about media. And they too spent weeks praying together and praying together. And at the end of their time together, they all moved to Colorado Springs. <laughs> now, some of you won't get that joke and it's okay. That is a hysterical joke. <laughs> But the point the rabbi was making is he was looking quite prophetically at folks like me and saying, you guys think that your role is to yell at the world, not to change it. And somehow that if you isolate yourselves and protest at the world, that somehow it will change. But Hunter believes as a Christian, that what is needed is actually several generations of believers that will be raised up to live as what he calls a faithful presence or a faithful witness in multiple areas of cultural influence. Amen. Now, this is hard to get people into those roles for two reasons. First of all, it's hard to get to those positions. And part of what has to happen in order for you to get to those kinds of positions is you have to work hard. And you have to specialize in particular fields and you have to study and be kind and do well and advance. But maybe even more difficult than that is as you do that, you have to be, remain shaped primarily by your identity in Christ. And so to be faithful presence in the world, Hunter argues, takes two really difficult things. You have to get to places of influence, but you have to get there as people faithful to the gospel. Yep. 
And I would argue this morning, maybe that is why the Jewish people in exile love to tell stories about Joseph or Daniel. In this case, Esther. Because they are our children who in God's providence made it to seats of authority with Pharaoh, made it to places of influence with Nebuchadnezzar, made it to places of persuasion with the king of Persia, and yet remain faithful. So in the few minutes that we have left, I want to just talk with you about what does it take to live as a faithful presence. If you're taking notes this morning, this is your cue. What does it take to live as a faithful presence? First, today, I think it takes continual practices that form one's primary identity. To quote the great theologian Mufasa, you have to always remember who you are. I think it's important in these stories to recognize how often names are changed. Daniel is his Hebrew name. Belteshazzar is his Babylonian name. Hadassah is her Hebrew name. Esther is her Persian name. That's more than just having your name changed. It represents what does it mean to live in two different spheres? What does it mean to try to straddle two different communities of influence? What does it mean to live as a person with all these conflicting identities? I say this often. I desperately want you regularly worshiping, if not here, somewhere in these days, either in person or online, but not so that we can count you. We will. But not for that sake. But for this sake, if you are a Joseph or a Daniel or an Esther in this room, you have to remember who you are. And if gathering today is about anything, it's about being, people with, being with people who can encourage you, but being around songs and texts and practices that remind you, this is who you are. You are in Christ, a new creation. Amen. Amen. Don't forget it. Secondly, it takes discernment to recognize the hidden hand of God at work in the world through provenient grace. One of the things I like about being Wesleyans is we believe in this thing called provenient grace, which means that God is not absent from the world if we are not there. In just a few minutes, we're going to be sent into the world, and there is a sense in which we will be the church everywhere we go, and with us goes the unique presence of Christ in our midst. But provenient grace says God is not absent from the world. So some of you know Deb, when we were first married and lived in California, she worked in television and for a number of years worked at Warner Brothers. While she was working on sitcoms, one of her jobs was to get audiences to come for the tapings. And uh, <laughs> one week we invited, she invited this group of kids who are part of a Christian film school in LA. 
And uh, if you've ever been to a taping, you know that it's kind of a long night. They usually shoot every scene at least twice. And they always have a comedian or audience warm-up to try to make sure you're still laughing and you haven't fallen asleep. We could use one of those in church. Um, <laughs> but somebody who keeps the audience kind of fresh. Well, during one of the breaks, this comedian was interviewing folks that were there and, and came across these students from this Christian film school. And I forget his name, but he, he grabbed this kid. And he said, tell me who you are and what you're doing here. And he goes, my name is so-and-so, and I'm from Iowa, and I've moved out here to infiltrate the industry for Jesus, right? Um, <laughs> I just could see Debbie on the floor going, yeah. She and I often talked about, prayed about even the fact that how great it was that God had placed her in a position to be at Warner Brothers each day. But God is not absent from that studio, as secular and as worldly as it is. Every square inch of the creation belongs to him. Amen. Amen. And God was at work, and Debbie's job was to do well and to be a good worker and to be creative, but it was also to go to Warner Brothers each day with the eyes of a master detective to see the hand of God at work and to be faithful to participate in that work. And so we need those eyes that don't see ourselves as infiltrators of the world, help the world, but as people who are responding to the God who is at work there. Thirdly, more often than not, the work that we're called to will show up in forms of liberation and acts of justice and mercy. Amen. It is important in the three texts that I've mentioned this morning to remember when Joseph came to power, it was to save a people who are starving. When Daniel came to influence, it was because of forces that were oppressing his people. And for Esther too, the call came in this moment to speak into, to be an instrument for redemption in the midst of oppression and to be a voice for justice in the midst of, of an empire gone crazy. This is an important point. There's a saying from John Wesley uh, that we love to quote, and it's a good one. John Wesley's advice to all of you in various fields is make all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. Write that down. Make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. That is wonderful advice. But I think sometimes in the Christian tradition, we have said to people who work in spheres that don't have a lot of God talk in them, your primarily, primary role is to make all you can, save all you can, and then come back and give all you can which is great. And if you could get a chance, throw a Bible study and maybe talk to somebody about Jesus over lunch. Please hear me this morning. All of those things are great. But in these situations, a people who are called to be instruments of change in the world are a people who, in all of those spheres, recognize that we serve a God who always hears the cries of the oppressed. And bear within us, then, a call to participate in the goodness, reconciliation, justice, and mercy of God. Which leads me to my fourth thing. 
But sometimes that takes courage to stand in moments of resistance. Again, the key text from Esther this morning, Esther 4, is when Mordecai says to her, who knows? Maybe this whole crazy beauty pageant thing, maybe this whole elevation of you in the palace, maybe all of that was meant for this moment, for this time. I need to say something to those of you in various fields of cultural influence. I don't have the moral authority this morning to tell you when that time is. Or to tell you when you should lay everything on the line for the sake of X, Y, or Z. I get to live in a sphere where we do God talk. And unfortunately, at times, hurt each other in that. But I do believe that for many, if not most or all of you, that God has raised up the places of influence, there will likely come a time when the voice of God will speak and say, this is the moment. This is the time. I raised you up for such a time as this. And it will take courage. <laughs> Lastly, it takes persistence. I love that title from Eugene Peterson's book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Part of what I love about getting to participate across the street, and again, thank you for giving me the freedom to do that. I love that NNU has, is now old and has been around for a while. And there have been generations of people who've come through whom that university has tried to, to shape them for good. Or in the new motto, to elevate them. Let me say, if I haven't said it clearly enough this morning, that is a noble pursuit for us to raise up our children and our brothers and sisters to enter into the world and to be elevated into positions of authority and influence in the world. Thanks be to God. Pay your budgets. Send your children. But as Hunter loves to say, this the world changes slowly. And it takes a people who are a faithful presence who persist in doing the things God has called us to do. Amen. And so let me close this morning by saying I'm really proud of these accumulating years of pastoral ministry and accumulating years of shaping the next generation of good God talkers. I love this semester, by the way, I get to teach preaching. And so I'm trying to help people like Riley be better at God talk. There's only so much you can do, really. No, I'm just kidding. He's awesome. I, 
one of my proudest moments a few years ago, we had a denominational um, gathering and I was asked to speak at. And as soon as it was over, I went out into the lobby and about 20 former students gathered around who are all in ministry and doing mostly well. And it was just, I just so, I love that. I love that I get to do that. But each semester, my favorite course actually to get to teach, as much as I love shaping those who are going into ministry, my preferred course is actually a course called Intro to Theology or in my snoo days was Intro to Christian Thought. Because it's my chance to get to talk to students who are likely not going into ministry, but going into all sorts of other fields to which God has called them. And it's my chance to get to mess with them a bit. A chance to get them to fall in love with Jesus. The mission that he has given them in their life. I was thinking about, and I love that social media has made it possible for for me to keep in touch and stalk some of my former students and friends. It's a beautiful gift. When I was teaching at SNU, we lived on campus for a while and Deb got really sick and was sick for a few, several days. And one morning, the boys were little and they were screaming and crying and Debbie was not being good at being sick. And I went to my class a bit exasperated and the students looked at me, it was my Christian thought class, students looked at me and said, Dr. Daniels, are you okay? I said, no. <laughs> my kids are a nightmare and my wife is sick. This young woman, as soon as class was over, walked over, she knew where we lived, knocked on the door and said, hi, can I help? <laughs> and she became like a second daughter to us. We didn't have a first one yet, but she became like a daughter to us. Today, she's a leading OBGYN in the state of Oklahoma. So proud of her. But not just proud of what she's accomplished in her career. She is a warrior for the poor. And I have to say, sometimes she's as frustrated with the church as she is happy with it. But I want to say this morning, Dr. Lydia, please keep pushing. In those years, there was a little gal who would come to Debbie's small group and just chat and chat and chat and cry and cry and cry about our relationships and wanting to be a disciple of Jesus. We love that girl. Today she is a journalist in Dallas, using her writing to strengthen the community and using her writing to call to justice systems that are unjust. And her husband is a leading pediatrician in the city we love you, Carrie. We love you, Damien. Be a faithful presence. In our first trip to Pasadena, there was a kid who was a staff kid who ran around in the youth group and was a great kid, but squirrely like most high schoolers are. Today, he's a head coach of a major NCAA Division I program. Congratulations, John, on the big win last night. Go Beavers. 
couple years ago on our anniversary, Deb and I went to San Francisco. We decided it was time to see what this whole Hamilton thing was all about. So we went to see it, and a young man named Darnell, who'd been a student at APU and an amazing voice and super talented and had traveled with me to South Africa as part of a big conference to lead worship. There was Darnell playing George Washington in the production. Continue to be a light in that place, Darnell. Sweet, dear, lovely young woman who has extended family in this church, who left the university and became a success at Sesame Street and then has climbed the ladder of Google and now works to help the internet be a safer place. Oh, may it be so. Congratulations on your wedding, Mindy. Keep at it. When I was a youth, group, youth director, one of my favorite quizzers was this tiny little girl who could hardly hold the jump seat down. So sweet. So talented. And today she is a major finance advisor, private wealth advisor in Seattle. I wish she could take care of my money, but it's missing at least two zeros, probably three. <laughs> she joins us almost every week online. I want to say I love you, Tracy. I could keep going. I have friends, former congregants, young people who are now aerospace engineers, pop stars, orchestrators for films, writers, directors, lawyers, politicians. There are folks in this room who are public school administrators, builders and realtors, insurance agents, medical specialists, military leaders, agricultural innovators, protectors of natural resources. The list goes on and on. The gospel text for this, this morning is from Mark. It's where Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Amen. You are the salt of the earth. And so take as much of this as you can this morning from somebody who's a professional God talker. I truly don't understand what it means to go into a world each day and at many levels to feel like you are a Christ bearer whose name is hidden and darkness. To navigate the challenges of all of the industries in a very broken world. But I want to say to you this morning, you, you are our Joseph. You are our Daniel. You are our Esthers. And for you who are students, our hope, our, our prayer is that God would give you a passion for something that would help you to thrive and to get to places of influence and that you would be a faithful presence there. Amen. And I don't know when the moment will come, but it will likely come when for just such a moment, 
God has called you to be an instrument, to be salt in a world devoid of saltiness, light in a world filled with darkness. This morning as we close, I would love to ask for a privilege, and this is one of those, there are moments when as a pastor you think, I'm gonna try something, and this could be a major fail, and we're never doing this again. But some of you this morning, God has brought to places of, of influence. And you know, you are a Joseph, you are a Daniel, you are an Esther. And you know the challenges are real. And you need a community of faith that acknowledges who you are and prays for God's direction and discernment in what you do. And there are some students here who feel that tug and who feel that call. And there are some of you this morning who have sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters and their pictures are on your refrigerator and you're so proud of them you can hardly stop talking about them but you know the challenges that they face. And this morning you would love to represent them and invite a community of faith to pray for God's blessing and discernment in their life. And so if you fit one of those categories, if you are somebody who is in that position, if you're somebody who is young and feels drawn to that, if you're somebody who has one of those in your life and you want to represent them, I would love as I close in prayer this morning for you just to stand where you are and let us to pray for you. And if you're online this morning, if that's you, if you would just say in the chat bar something like, pray for me, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. God, help me. God, help so-and-so. We'd love to include you in that prayer. And so if that's you this morning, would you stand and let me pray a prayer of blessing upon you today? God, we come today in front of a strange text of Scripture, a book in which your name is not mentioned, but a book in which your presence is discerned and where your call is acknowledged. I pray this morning for some of these sisters and brothers in this room who by your grace you have elevated to places of influence in this community and in this world. Only you and they know how hard it is to do what you've called them to do and to be a faithful presence. I pray for some young people here that you would capture them by a vision to become an instrument of change in the world. And that will take not just a commitment to you, that will take a commitment to work and to study and to develop the giftedness that you've given to them. But as they offer that to you today, 
May you acknowledge the sacrifice they lay before you and may you give it back to them like that little boy's lunch. May you give it back to them in abundance. And I pray for some of us who hold so dear to our hearts, our children, who are trying to discover where you want them to go. And they're headed into places where the word of God is rare and where the need for discernment is great. And for the empowerment of your spirit is a necessity. And so bless. And I pray, God, there may be one or two in this room. I don't know if this is the moment. But where you are helping them to see the things that break your heart in the place where they are. And you, I convinced, you do not invite us to go chasing after every cross to die on. But there may be one or two online or in this room today whom this is your word to them today from the lips of Mordecai. Perhaps you were raised up for this moment. Give them courage today and give them a community that loves and embraces and not just cheers them on, but has their back. May we be that kind of family to each other today. And so bless us. Make us your Josephs and your Daniels and your Esthers. Keep our true identity connected to you, but may you be glorified in our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, amen. Let's